pray. Father, we want to thank you that you have spoken in the past in many ways, but uh, there came the time where you spoke definitively through your son, the Lord Jesus. And so we thank you that uh, his life was witnessed and recorded and written down and that we have your word in our hands today. And we believe what your word has to say about itself, that it is inspired by your Holy Spirit, that it's all your breathed out word. And so, Father, we desire that you would speak to us, every person present here today, uh, that we would hear what you have to teach us and that you'd enable us to uh, live for Christ in this week ahead. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Uh, I wonder, do you find the humanity of Jesus as a topic that is a bit embarrassing? Uh, I've heard that for many of our Muslim friends, uh, they have such a transcendent view of Allah that they can't cope with any talk of God becoming a flesh and blood man. Would a holy God take on such a humiliating experience of becoming uh, a human with all the limitations, with all the frailties, with all the indignities of having a physical human body. For many of our Jewish friends, the idea of a suffering Messiah is also one that is something they, they, they can't accept. Jesus, the Messiah King, really? The one who was rejected by the Jewish leaders in the temple in Jerusalem, the one who was publicly mocked, the one who, whose body was beaten and, and subjected to slow and agonizing death, the crucifixion, the one who was nailed up to a wooden tree and looking like one cursed by God, a criminal, that Jesus, him, the Messiah King, really? It's not hard to imagine the mockery that the Christian converts who'd converted from Judaism to following Christ, it's not hard to imagine the mockery that they would have received from the synagogue leaders where they once worshipped and from their own Jewish family. And uh, as they increasingly faced hostility, they were being tempted to drift away from their Christian faith and convictions. And when we're in danger of drifting from Jesus, what should we do? Well, we're learning from this book that we need to fix our eyes more firmly on Jesus. And instead of being embarrassed by the humanity and the suffering of Jesus, the writer to the Hebrews teaches us how these very things are the means by which Jesus is fitted to be our Savior, to be the pioneer of our salvation, enabling him to be the our hope for the future, and our help in the present. So please open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, and you'll find it on page 1201. And I'm going to take the time to read the whole of chapter 2 today. Hebrews chapter 2, page 1201 in the Church Bibles. Hebrews 2, 1-1. 
We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you're mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present... We do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says... I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, Here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's Word. So this is a book that, that keeps us urging us to fix our eyes on, on Jesus. And if chapter 1 teaches us that uh, Jesus is superior over the angels in his deity because he is the Son of God, 
then chapter 2 shows us his superiority over angels in his humanity as the Son of Man. It is about the fact that he was a real flesh and blood man that fits him to be our Savior. Now there's so much here, there's so much detail here. But I want us just to focus on two descriptions of Jesus uh, that both require his full humanity for him to be our Savior. Jesus, our pioneer, and Jesus, our liberator. Jesus is our pioneer, who is the answer to our failure. And Jesus is the liberator, who is the answer to our fears. Now, if you enjoy um, action and adventure stories, movies like that, then you've probably seen the sort of epic where uh, people are captured and they're imprisoned in some horrendous hellhole where they experience much cruelty, much unjust treatment, and there's no possibility of escape whatsoever. And when it looks that all hope is lost, the hero comes along and mounts an incredible rescue mission. It involves him making uh, some way through an impenetrable jungle and discovering a way to break into the prison. And to the absolute amazement of the prisoners, the, the hero arrives out of nowhere, as it were, uh, in, the, in their prison cells, and he liberates them. And he says something like this, I know the way out. I, I have made a way of escape. Follow me. And he leads the way. Now, I think that's, I don't know whether that works for you, but that, that to me is a visual image, really, of what's going on here, that Jesus is the, is the pioneer, and he is the liberator who's come to rescue us. Look at verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. What's the purpose of this mission that Jesus undertook? It is our salvation, verse 10. It's described here as bringing many sons and daughters to glory. And it presupposes a number of things, doesn't it? It presupposes that we have lost our way and that we're living in guilt and shame. And really that's how these verses begin from verse 5 onwards. It, it shows how we were supposed to be, as he quotes Psalm 8 in verses 6 to 8. It, it was written by King David. We, we read it and sang it earlier. Uh, no doubt remembering the nights where he was a shepherd, uh, keeping a watch on his flocks, uh, out at night, sleeping under the sky, seeing the brilliant stars of the heaven. And uh, he wrote this song, he wrote this poem. And he starts with great praise to God for uh, how extraordinary God is, his, his majestic glory that he creates this incredible cosmos, that, he, that, that the moon and the stars are his, the work of his fingers. And then he turns to utter amazement that this God who creates this incredible vision before him in the night sky, that this God should care for a tiny, insignificant, puny human beings like, like David, like, like us. 
And then, and then this turns to amazement of the unique place that God has given mankind in his creation. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. And then the amazement that God has given them a job to do. To rule over the creation he has made. Do you know why God made you? Here's one of the reasons. God made you uh, to rule over his creation. It, it picks up the language of Genesis chapter 1, where we read of God's determination, the very beginning of creation. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over the wild animals and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God gave men and women this unique position in his creation to rule over it. So yes, while, while we are a little lower than the angels... We're crowned with glory and honor as God has put everything under our feet, it says. And so that's what we see in the world, isn't it? People living in joyful worship of God, living in loving, harmonious relationships, ruling over his creation for the glory of God's good stewards of his resources, advancing the Garden of Eden throughout the world. Well, no, that's not what we see, is it? That's not the world we see today. Yes, we're capable of, of great things. I'm still loving looking at that Queensferry Bridge. I, I, it was amazing to see it rise out of the sea. And there it is. Puny little human beings making a great big structure like that. It's an extraordinary thing. And yet we still live in a world of strife, of relational conflict, of breakdown, of exploitation, of war, of addictions and heartache. We fail to fulfill this potential for which we were created. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We're not crowned with glory and honor, for we are sinners. Instead of ruling over, we are more aware of being dominated by our sin, of being ruled over by our sin and our guilt and our shame, of being terrorized by the fearful reality of death. I'm a bit sick of hearing about film moguls. I don't know about you. But here's a film mogul who um, is responsible for creating visual feasts for the eyes, great creativity and skill, and yet he turns out to be somebody who abuses others for his own twisted desires. And, and although supposedly the one in charge, he seems to be totally enslaved by his passions, and now everything around him is crumbling to dust. Well, that's just one of many stories that we've lost our way. We don't see everything subject to mankind because of sin. Verse 9, but we do see Jesus, the pioneer of our salvation. See, while we're, we are failures, failing to live up to the ideal of Psalm 8, we're shown how Jesus fulfilled Psalm 8 in his incarnation, in his um, suffering, and in his exaltation. Who for a little while, it says in verse 9, 
was made lower than the angels, taking on flesh and blood, becoming fully human in every way. It's striking that uh, as you read the gospel accounts of, 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 about Jesus, that the phrase he often uses of himself is the Son of Man. And part of its significance is rooted into Psalm 8. Here is the one who is truly human. Here is the one who is human how God intended us to be. Read about his life. A human being like us in every way, yet without sin. One who had awesome authority over sickness, storms, and Satan. And yet he suffered all the same frailties, all the same limitations of being human. He knew what it was to be tired, to be cold, to be hungry, to be mocked, to be rejected, to be beaten, to know that he was going to die, to experience death. And why did this happen? Well, because God had a bigger plan of salvation. Look again at verse 9. He suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see, Jesus is not only our pioneer, but our liberator. Uh, in uh, verse 14 and 15, we see that arrayed against every human being is the threat of, of, of sin and the consequent judgment of God, uh, the threat of the devil and of death itself. Our failure, our sin separates us from this holy God. It, it leads to death and condemnation. And our guilt is what the devil uses over us, accusing us like some sort of mafia boss who's got the dirt on you, the incriminating evidence, and so he uses that to hold you in fear that unless you do exactly what he says, he's going to let everybody know, extorting you, forcing you to do his bidding. And here's the big idea of this chapter. Jesus shared fully in our humanity and experienced death for all of us so that we can share fully in his glorious victory over death and the devil. He fully experienced our humanity and experienced death for all of us so that we can fully share in his victory over the devil and over death. Jesus, you see, is our pioneer, come to make a way back to God. He's the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, our liberator, comes to um, defeat the devil. How does he do that? Well, by paying the penalty for our guilt. Uh, in verse 17, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. That word underneath atonement really has this idea of propitiate, of God's anger being turned away from those who deserve it, he absorbing it in himself. He is punished for the sins of his people so that we can know forgiveness and freedom. It's as if that incriminating evidence the devil has on us is, uh, is totally destroyed. It can never be pulled up again. The devil is defeated in his accusing uh, nature against us because Christ has fully paid 
for all of our sins. God's wrath is turned away so that all who trust him can follow this salvation pathway to resurrection, life, and glory. Now, while we might still have some anxiety about the manner by which we die, the person who trusts Christ has nothing to fear from death itself. We're forgiven people. There's no condemnation. We don't fear hell, for we're bound for glory. Jesus is our pioneer who suffered death and then was raised to life. He's ascended at God's right hand in glory. He fulfills what humanity was supposed to be, and he is now crowned with glory and honor. And here's the point for this little persecuted church that the, letter, uh, the, the writer of this letter is writing this to. Here's the point. They, they might feel very small, very insignificant, but look at verse 10. He came to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Jesus is the answer to our failure. And his salvation will bring us to a place where we fulfill our glorious potential. Uh, we yearn to fulfill our potential, don't we? And yet we're always thwarted. Christ came to be the pioneer who's led the way. And what is ahead of us is also to be crowned with glory and honor and to rule and reign with Christ so that everything is under the feet, to be what uh, we were called to be. He's going to bring many sons to glory. And he's the answer to our fear because his salvation brings full forgiveness. He liberates us from the, from the accusations of the devil. I don't know whether you've... Um, seen these incredible people, these solo climbers, who, uh, you know, imagine come to this rock face, this huge rock face, and, uh, you know, uh, no one has ascended this, but an extraordinary solo climber who uh, begins to make his way up, ascends up with a rope, and all along, along, way, along the way, he finds little points where he can put little anchor points and he secures the rope and he climbs all the way to the top, gets to the top safely, secures the rope and he, and he shouts down to those behind him, says, latch onto my rope and follow me. He's made the way. That's what Christ has done for us. He's pioneered the way. All is, that is required is that we continue to trust him. If we continue to pay careful attention to Christ and do not drift away from him, then we too will be crowned with glory and honor. We too will rule and reign with Jesus. And we too will experience this thing of everything being put under our feet. Our little lives, I think, can seem so mundane, so insignificant, whether we're stuck at home with little toddlers or doing mundane or repetitive jobs we can feel that we're not very significant. My Christian friends, don't believe that for a moment. You are destined for glory and honor. If your lives are linked with Christ, he is the pioneer of our salvation. He has liberated us through his death and he's led the way home. Now how... 
How do we have confidence that this is the case? We'll look at verse 10 again. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now we know there's no moral imperfection in Jesus that had to be removed. But what he's saying is this, that that his suffering reveals his fitness to be our Savior. As a flesh and blood man, his continued obedience, his continued trust, his continual submission to the will of his Father was tested and proved through what he suffered. We see him in the agony of the, of the Garden of Gethsemane, looking at what it was going to mean to drink God's wrath the next day, as it were, the cup of his wrath. And we see the agony and the torment. Is there any other way? Yet not my will, but your will be done. At every point, the suffering that came upon him, and yet he pushes through to obedience, submission, and trust. And he, therefore, is the perfect Savior. And we can have total confidence to depend upon him for our salvation. In our old offices, we were quite high up. And uh, I discovered as the cleaner uh, sort of seemed to throw himself out the window to clean our windows, that the reason he could do this, there was these little anchor points on the outside of the wall. And uh, I'm seen to just disappear out the window. What on earth is happening? He's hanging from this anchor point. Now, every year, some chap would come around with this extraordinary device that he would put, he, would, he himself would hang out, put it on this anchor point, and he would put huge pressure on this anchor point, huge tension, um, way, way more than the, the, the weight of a human body, and would yank and yank at this anchor point. And if it didn't budge, you knew everything was fine for the cleaners. And that's the point. We can have full confidence in this amazing Savior because he suffered for us. We can swing our whole life leaning and depending upon him because his humanity and his suffering is not an embarrassment. It is absolutely essential. It is the the crucial aspect of the glory of Jesus as the one who has been tested and is perfectly able to save all who put their whole selves leaning on him. This Jesus is able to lead us to glory. I don't know what anxious fears press in on you and how much they're rooted perhaps in the knowledge of your mortality. If you trust in Christ, he is fully able to bring us to glory. He shared our humanity and experienced death for all of us so that we can fully share in his victory over death and the devil. And for us today, perhaps we're more aware of our weakness today, of our frailty of our feebleness. We're more aware of that than 
thoughts of future glory. Well, what is there in this text for us today? Well, there are great encouragements, two encouragements in this text. Firstly, Jesus is not ashamed of us. And secondly, he's able to help us in our trials and temptations. Let's quickly look at that as we close. Look at how Jesus views us who are trusting him. Verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. We are of the same family as our brother Jesus today. And he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. This is utterly extraordinary. One of the moments of dread and horror you have as a parent of young toddlers is that moment in a shop where your child is, uh, your toddler is tired and hungry. And you know they're on the edge of chaos. And you gingerly walk around the supermarket. And there's that awful moment where they grab that chocolate bar and you very firmly take it off them and say, no, no. And they absolutely lose it. And they scream their heads off and they throw themselves on the floor and they stamp in rage and they scream and they holler. And you, it's just the worst, isn't it? It's totally embarrassing for the parent. Until you reach that street smart stage where you know the right response is to say very loudly, wait until I get you back to your parents. <laughs> They'll be so disappointed in your behavior. Well, here's a wonderful thing. Jesus, our pioneer, who is taking us to glory and is even now at work enabling us to grow in holiness, he's not ashamed to identify with us. Uh, we don't have time to look at all these quotes. The first quote it comes from Psalm 22. It starts, of course, with the very words that Jesus prayed from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A psalm that so vividly describes the experience of his crucifixion, the mockery, the scorn, his bones being out of joint, the, the piercing of his hands and his feet. And yet this psalm actually ends with the note of victory that looks beyond the cross to the resurrection. And that's what is quoted here in verse 12. I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. You know, what is Jesus doing right now? Well, this verse tells us he's at the right hand in glory, and he's leading the praise time today. And he's not embarrassed that we are his children. He is delighting that here are his brothers and sisters who are sharing in the salvation that he achieved at such great cost on the cross that he is bringing to glory and he's singing with delight in the heavenly realms over us, about us. He's not ashamed of us. That's encouraging. Secondly, this Jesus who knows what it is to suffer and be tempted is the merciful high priest who is able to help us. Look at verse 17. For this reason, 
He had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he suffered, he himself suffered, when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted today. Are you here today and you're under the white heat of temptation? Are you suffering? Are you struggling? At God's right hand is the Lord Jesus. Do you see him? Now crowned with glory and honor, everything under his feet, and he, the one who is fully human, he can fully identify with all the experiences of life, all the struggles, all the pains, all the heartaches. He knows what it is to be tempted, to turn away from doing God's will. To avoid suffering, to avoid difficulty, to avoid hardship. And he is fully able to help us. It's a hard passage to do justice to in one sermon. I, I, I picked up Kent Hughes' commentary uh, on Saturday morning and realized he'd done four sermons on this. And I thought, maybe I should have broken this down a bit more. But there we are. I was committed. There's so much in here. But my friends, whatever situation you're in today, I'm urging you to look to this Jesus, fully God, fully man. He's done everything he can do to liberate us from the devil, to liberate us from death, to forgive our sins. He has pioneered a way of salvation. You know, get back to that corny analogy. He sprung into the prison that hellhole where you are being unjustly and cruelly treated and there was no hope of escape. He's appeared and he says, I've made a way of escape. Follow me. What are you going to do? Are you going to follow him? He's made the way. The choice is yours. Will you follow him today? He's liberated us. He's the pioneer for us. Not only is he, a goal, is he the goal of what is ahead, he is the companion along the way. He is able to help those today who are being tempted. The final verse of the classic hymn, O Jesus, I Have Promised, by John Boyd, finishes with this final verse. O let me see thy footmarks. And in them, plant mine own. My hope to follow duly is in thy strength alone. O oh, guide me, call me, draw me, uphold me to the end. And then in heaven receive me, my Savior and my friend. Look to him today. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would lift our eyes off of ourselves and our failure and away from our fears that we may see Jesus, the perfect Savior. Well, Father, if we've never left the prison of our sin and condemnation, would you, this very day, bring about that salvation? 
Lord, we want to say we're sorry for our sins. And we thank you for Christ who is the perfect Savior. Help us to trust him and to follow in his footsteps. We thank you for all these great and precious promises that are ours, that he is able to help us, even if we are feeling those great temptations this day. He is able to help us. So by your Holy Spirit, would you put strength into us that we may stride out into this week confidently trusting Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.